Um, at the end of the day, we are all going to die with an unfinished to-do list. Like we will all have things that we did not get to accomplish and we will die before that. So it's critical for you to say, what are the items in my life that I'm not willing to die having not accomplished? Welcome to the Next Level Leader Podcast, where I want to help you escape average and lead at the next level. There's more in you, and it's time that you learn to lead at your full potential. So join me on this next level journey as we learn to escape average one day at a time. It's time to grow to the next level. The world is waiting. All right, welcome back to the Next Level Leader Podcast. Uh, I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have today. Um, I've got Garland Vance on the podcast with me. Garland is a speaker, he's a coach, consultant, he's an author, and an author of the book, Getting Unbusy, uh, Five Steps to Kill Busy and Live with Purpose, Productivity, and Peace. It's a book that changed my life, uh, and Garland, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast with me today, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. Man, I'm thrilled to be here, Jeff. Can't wait for this conversation. Awesome. Well, I told people a little bit about you, speaker, author, all the, the ticker tape things, but why don't you tell our listeners who is Garland Vance? Oh, Garland Vance is, I, I tell you, I believe that people have these big dreams and high priorities in their life that they want to accomplish. And they've had those, you know, all the, from the time they were kids, we have these big dreams and these high priorities. And I'm a person who really wants to release people and organizations to be able to do those. And I think one of the things that holds us back so much from that is over commitment. And so I've made part of my life's work to make busy a bad word in our culture so that people can have the time and the energy that they need to do the things that they dream of doing and that are really important to them. And in addition to that, I am an avid hat collector. So if we're on video, you can see uh, I love collecting hats yeah. with cool logos on them. That, that's the only criteria. It's got to have a cool logo on it. <laughs> yeah, I'm loving it, man. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about doing some next level uh, apparel. So if I do that, I'll send you a hat and I'll know it's cool Sweet. if it gets on the podcast. <laughs> or not. Nice. If it's on your background. So. Uh, well, man, thanks again for joining us. I know you talked about making busy, uh, one of those bad four-letter words. And really, since I've read your book, it has become that around our household. Um, I think this was a struggle that I didn't know. It was a battle I didn't know I was fighting for a long time. And your book really helped to just bring a ton of clarity to that. So let's talk about, uh, let's talk about that just to start out. We live in a culture where when you ask almost anyone how they're doing, they give us the same answer. It's some form of, I'm good just busy, right? So you talk about in the book about how we, in our culture, we wear busy as a badge of honor. Tell me what, what that looks like and why do you think uh, that high caliber, high capacity leaders are wearing busy as that badge of honor? Well, I think one of the reasons that we do that is, and we, we wear busy as a badge of honor. We brag about it. When somebody asks how we're doing, we say, I'm good. I'm just so busy. I think one of the reasons we do that is because we believe that to be busy is to be important, right? If, if our lives are not just overflowing with things, then there must be something wrong with me internally and, and my identity is is not important you know and and so we wear this busy as a badge of honor because what we're ultimately trying to say to people when they ask us how we're doing we're saying i'm good my life is full it's meaningful i'm an important person because i'm in demand 
every hour uh, of the day. And so it's really a way of helping us feel better about ourselves. Yeah, that's big. It's if my calendar's full, then I must be important. Right. People can can see my value. Um, Okay. So beyond taking it as a badge of honor, you said in your book, and I love this, you said busyness is not actually a badge of honor, but you made another comparison that floored me when I read it the first time, Garland, but I loved it. And uh, a lot of our listeners know uh, my wife is a therapist. So being married to a therapist, I see things from a a different viewpoint. I have to, if I'm ever going to win an argument, okay, I have to (laughs) see it from a psychological viewpoint. But you said something in the book, you said, busyness isn't a badge of honor. Busyness is a form of hoarding. Okay. Most of us have never thought of hoarding. Like, you know, I have so much stuff in my house that uh, you can't walk through. So Tell me, what did you mean when you said busyness is a form of hoarding for leaders? Yeah, so, so let me define busyness so that we can then draw this out. So busyness is an overcommitment to too many good commitments. Nobody is busy doing bad things, unless you're a dictator or a drug dealer or something like that. But most of us who are busy are busy because we have too many projects at work. We have too many home projects that we're doing. Our kids are involved in a whole bunch of things. We're involved in our church or in our community. And and so we have so many good commitments that when you put them all together, it becomes too much. And when I was starting to to research busyness um, for two reasons, I started one was for uh, because I was diagnosed with uh, the doctor saying you're you're killing yourself because you're so busy. And the second reason I started researching it is I was working on this doctorate in leadership. And I was like, if I'm struggling with busyness, I know that other leaders are struggling with this too. Let's, let's do the research around it. And as I'm doing this, yeah. this doctoral research, I'm watching a television show with my wife and I discover the, these, this show about hoarding. And it was fascinating. I mean, it's so wonderful, isn't it? To watch other people destroy their lives, right? So that we can feel better about our own. And so I'm watching this, this show about hoarding and realized that hoarding is collecting things that people view as good and meaningful and purposeful in their lives. And they collect so much of it that they lose the ability to function. They lose their friends. Their house begins to get destroyed, infested with with rats. And I was like, that's exactly what busyness does to us is that we collect all of these good commitments and we begin to put them into our lives. But that, that is the very thing that causes the decay and the frustration and the challenges that we experience as a result of that. And so busyness is a form of hoarding. And the other thing that I think was really cool in that discovery, uh, Jeff, is the realization that we go through uh, the same process to deconstruct busyness as a hoarder goes through to get rid of their, their hoarding. Wow. No, the, you, you, you talked about it. And the more I read and the more I hear you talk about it, the more I'm just saying, you know what, that is, that's right. But if, if I was a hoarder, the people around me would hopefully say, you know, Hey Jeff, let's have an intervention. I think you have a problem, right? Yet when I was at the pinnacle of my busyness, Garland, nobody said, Jeff, we think you have a problem. They called it high capacity. And they said, <laughs> right. you're a great leader, right? Um, and I'll actually never forget. So I was talking to you about this before the recording started, you know, um, late 2019, the second half of 2019, my blood pressure was out of control to the point to where my doctor said, Hey, Jeff, if you don't get this under control, you're going to have a heart attack. You're going to stroke out. Like we're going to have to hospitalize you. 
Like it was that bad. I was having yeah. to check my blood pressure really every hour on the day for a while. Right. And I didn't know what was causing it until he said, Jeff, it's stress. It's stress. Where's that stress coming from? It was busyness. But if you, if you rewind about a year before I had a leader who pulled me aside and with good intentions said, Hey, Jeff, you're one of the best leaders I know. You're really high capacity and you're on track for a lot of promotions. Um, but somebody in the organization asked you the other day how you were doing and you were just talking to them. And they, they came to me afterwards to say, hey, does Jeff have too much on his plate? He seems, you know, he just seems not quite himself. And uh, the conversation wasn't from that leader. Hey, do you have too much on your plate? Is there something we can do? Are you okay? Instead, it was, hey, don't let people know you're, you're busy. Don't let people know you're wow. overwhelmed. He said, you want them to feel like they can always trust you with something. And uh, there's a project they're thinking about trusting you with that, that now they're wondering if you're too busy. So I began to like hide it even more, mm. how busy I was. Fast forward to the point to where it almost killed me. Um, but as you and I talked about today, I'm taking some of the principles literally from your book. Um, man, you, you fast forward to now and my blood pressure is below normal. My heart rate is, is at times almost too low because my stress levels, although they should be higher, running my own business, they should be higher doing all this and still a pandemic life, yet I'm more happy and more productive than I've ever been. So um, as you're listening, if you're listening to this today, you're watching along with us, um, I want you to know this book is, these aren't just words on a page. This isn't just another author. This is a guy I know. This is a guy I trust. And this book has made an impact on my life. So um, thanks so much for, for that, Garland. And I, I wanted to make sure that people knew that. But why do you think people act that way? Why do you think leaders act that way? Because I've heard that more than one time. But that was my experience of don't show people you're busy. Let them know yeah. you can take on that extra project. Keep taking on more commitments. What is it that makes us do that, not just as individuals, but organizationally when it comes to the people and the teams we lead? And how can we get out of that mindset? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of reasons, but, but I'll tell you the one that nobody likes to hear. I think it's laziness that causes us to like those people. Because if I, as a leader, want to delegate a project to somebody, the easiest thing for me to do is to find the person who never says no. The person who will take on every project. That doesn't mean that the project will be done the best. That doesn't mean that the project will be done on time. But the easiest thing for me to do is to find the person who will never say no. It's much harder to find the person who has strong boundaries and who will literally say, um, let me think about that and see where that fits in to, uh, to you know, what I'm working on right now, the goals that I want to, uh, that I want to accomplish in the long run. And I'll, I'll think about that. So it, it's, it's really, really interesting to me because the, in, in, in all areas of life, we place a higher value on those things that have scarcity within them, right? Gold is more scarce than copper is, uh, unless something's changed and I don't know about it. So we place a higher value on, on gold, right? But when it comes to people's time, we often think that the person who is the most valuable is the person who doesn't make themselves the most scarce, right? They're the person who just says yes to, to, to everything. 
we wouldn't think that, you know, if you if you take that to to its logical conclusion, you wouldn't think that Tony Robbins has much more scarce availability than you or I do. So he can command a higher price. But in organizations, when we're working with people, it's often perceived the opposite way. Like the person who's most valuable is the person who says yes to everything, even if they're not going to do the great job. So how do we change that as leaders? I'm leading my team. Um, I've gotten in the habit of looking at people that way. I want people who are going to say, yes, I want people who are all in, who are team players. I want people who are fully bought into the mission of the company. You know, I, I, I hear that you as a consultant, you hear that a lot. How, from your perspective, does a leader say, okay, that's got to shift. Um, so how do they make that shift and what does it look like to lead differently when they do? Yeah. So it's hard. And I don't think you, you approach it head on. You actually kind of have to approach it a, a little bit sideways. So, so I would give a couple of recommendations to a leader who's, who's really trying to make that change. The first is getting crystal clear on your highest priorities as an organization or as a team. Uh, most teams have 10, 15, or 20, you know, quote, priorities and there's no way you can manage all those priorities. Uh, at, and, and so the first thing that I would encourage a leader to do is think in terms of what are the priorities? And then they need to, once they determine those priorities, they need to ask themselves four questions around those priorities. What do we need to stop doing, right? What's getting in the way of those priorities? The second is, uh, what do we need to initiate? That's what, you know, what's, what new is going to, to have to happen in order for us. That's where the bulk of your energy is going to go. And so you need to know, you know, if this is going to be the, the new thing that we're doing, how do we allocate time and energy and resources to that? Third question is, what do we need to maximize? What right now is, uh, is okay, but we need to improve it in order to accomplish that, those, you know, few goals that we're setting. The final is what do we need to maintain? What's good enough right now? And we need to give ourselves permission to not touch these things. So that's the, the, really the first thing that a leader needs to do is get really clear on what are the priorities, ask those four questions. The second thing that I would encourage a leader to do is going to be very counterintuitive, but it's limit the number of hours that your people work, right? We've, you, I know you've heard it, Jeff, uh, but, uh, but not everybody has, but there's this thing called Parkinson's law, which says work expands to fill the time allotted. There is this magic that happens when you say to a person, you can't work more than 40 hours, more than 42 hours, more, you know, some, some limit to it is that we find ways to do the work that we need to do in the time period that we have. And so if a leader can say, here's the priorities, and then here's the limits on the number of hours that you work, then that gives people much greater ability to prioritize their own time knowing uh, what they have. So that's how I would encourage leaders to approach it. It's really kind of a sideways approach. Yeah, well, those things make an impact. Those things make an impact because how many people do we work with? And, you know, we do, we do different things, work with different organizations at different times, yet often there's, uh, you know, what's that key word that we're hearing with key people on the teams It's burnout, right? Well, yep. what is causing burnout? It's, you know, it, it's a lot of those things you're just talking about. We're not putting a limit on the time that they're spending, um, you know, and, and we're not rewarding people taking things like vacation, which you talk about in the book, we're taking less vacation than we've ever taken. 
Um, when we are on vacation, we're working, we're doing stuff like crazy. So if we don't ever disengage, um, then our, our whole life can almost expand to, to fill the work. And we take it home yep. with us, take it on vacation with us, and it just gets crazy. So um, you, you talked about a minute ago, you mentioned a word that is, uh, it's a word that's used a lot in our house. Uh, I love it. My wife loves it. My kids hate it. Okay. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's the B word, boundaries. Boundaries. Yeah. Now, my wife talks a lot about boundaries from a psychological standpoint. Um, but I find when I talk about boundaries with leaders, the head always goes down. There's a little bit of frustration. Um, but boundaries are a good thing. Boundaries are things that protect us, protect our organization, protect our businesses. So um, what are some key boundaries that you would encourage leaders to put in place, not only in their own leadership, but on their teams to help kill busy? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you're so right. And it, it's hilarious to me how leaders tend to hate the word boundaries until you think about how important they are in the rest of life. Like, you know, I we're, we're about to start football season. And uh, if we did not have boundaries on the field, the game would be totally pointless. Right. You would have a wide receiver who would run up into the stands and be like, hey, I'm open. I'm open. And it would be like, this is stupid. Like, as long as you can outrun somebody, you're going to you know, it, it's just a dumb game if there's no boundaries and life becomes less meaningful when we don't build boundaries. So I think there are several boundaries that are critical for leaders to develop personally and for their team. Personally, you wanna create what's called an end of work boundary. This is a time period that you put in your calendar and you say, this is when work stops for me. So for example, for me, I tend to work better early in the morning. So I have a 4.30 stop time that's built into my calendar. This is my end of work boundary. Most days, some days I violate it, but most days 4.30 is when it's done. You need an end of work boundary. You also need what's called an end of day boundary. So an end of day boundary is where it is for being at home where you say, this is when work around the home is going to stop on a daily basis. Maybe it's 8.30 at night or 9 o'clock at night, but it's giving you margin at the end of the day to connect with the people that you care about the most, to disengage mentally from, from work and activity, and to begin to rest a little bit. I think there's also, there's two more that you need to establish with your team. One of those is communication boundaries. When is it okay for us to be in communication with each other. So I, I worked with a leader about a year ago who was sending emails to his team at 11 o'clock at night, one o'clock in the morning. And then he would get upset with his team when they did the same, you know, they would send him something at two o'clock in, in mm -hmm. the morning. And finally we were like, hey, let's build some communication boundaries. At what time does communication stop unless it's an emergency? And they decided 6 p.m. And then they also said, if communication needs to take place after that, you have to preface it with the word emergency. Mm. And that create that cut out 99% of their uh, evening communication, but the quality of their communication went up. It was, it was great. And so, um, so giving people freedom for that communication boundary. The final one I'd say is a travel boundary for those who travel a ton I think it's important to help them establish if you're gone this many nights from home, here's the comp time that you get, or here's the makeup time that, that you get. There just has to be some boundaries for those who, it's not as prominent right now with, with COVID, but for those who are traveling 
significantly. They need to know that they have permission to be at home for longer periods of time. Yeah. And I think in some of the industries that I've helped with, especially in some of the nonprofit industries, that's not even a travel boundary as much as it's the same boundary around things like events. It's yep. time periods where you're having to work extra or you're having to do something that takes place on a weekend, um, takes place on a night when people are off of work. So having that comp time, I think is, I think is huge. And, and those are four boundaries, man. They're, they're simple, but God, they just, they pay such huge dividends. They make such a big difference. So um, if you're listening, you're saying, I don't know, those boundaries seem hard. Gosh, they pay, they really do pay off and they're not that difficult to put into place. So um, if it seems like it's too much uh, for someone or they feel overwhelmed right off the bat, would you recommend just starting with one boundary um, or starting yep. with two boundaries? How would you recommend to start that if that feels too big? Yeah, I would say if it feels too big, start with one. Uh, if you're a team leader, I would start with either the communication boundary or the end of day boundary. Um, the, sorry, the end of work boundary. Um, I think either of those would be a great place to get your team started on building strong boundaries. Yeah, I think your team will thank you. If you start with those two, I think they're going to thank you because that boundary communicates not, hey, I read a book, I listened to a podcast, and this guy said do it. It communicates, I care about you beyond just work. I care about you as a human. And when we care about people, they want to do better work. So, um, man, those are, those are so good. So here's something I noticed when looking at busyness in my life. Um, my family likes me better now than they did 18 months ago. Yeah. And it's, it's not because they were feeling the effects of high blood pressure or stress or anything like that. It's because I'm not in as much of a hurry. So um, I, you, know, you and I were talking about margin that I placed in my calendar, um, different things I've done with my travel and some stuff like that. But I realized um, really right before the pandemic hit that I'm the biggest jerk in the world to the people I love most when I'm in a hurry or I feel behind, Right. The problem was I felt behind all the time. So every time we got ready to leave the house and get in the car, I was um, I was more terse, right? Yeah. I was more aggressive. I would get louder and, and people felt like I was mad. My kids felt like I was mad. My wife felt like I was mad. And now they feel like they can talk to me as we're walking out the door. They feel like they can have conversations, right? Why is it that we come across as jerks to the people we love most <laughs> when we're busiest? Yeah. Yeah. So busyness has been uh, connected to burnout, right? You talked about burnout earlier. Um, some of the earliest studies on burnout by Dr. Christina Maslock found that that our commitment level is what leads to burnout. The more overcommitted we are, the, the more likely it is that we're going to burn out. So burnout has three stages to it. Uh, there's emotional exhaustion is the first, depersonalization is the second, and the third is a loss of sense of personal accomplishment. So to answer your question, just look at that second one, depersonalization. That's a, a, a psychological condition where we begin to actively dislike the people who we care about the most. And typically our family are the people who are going to demand the most from us, right? When, when your kids are young, they need help with everything from dirty diapers to feeding to, you know, to getting water, to getting buckled into the car, all of those things. But even as they get older, they're still the ones who often demand the most uh, attention and the most resources from us. 
And so the busier we are, the more likely it is that we're going to go into depersonalization and we're going to begin to actively dislike the people that we care about the most. And that's going to look like, you know, terseness or, I mean, you said you're terse. Like when I was at my busiest, I was yelling constantly, get out the door, get out the door. I mean, like anytime we're trying to go anywhere, like dad turned into this evil monster. And, and so, yes, it's this whole idea of depersonalization where we're burning out. And so we're treating the people that we care about the most as if we actually dislike them. Yeah. Well, and, and I remember you, you telling the story in the book that you and your family had, uh, taking some time aside to work on family values, core family values and mission statement. And, and you started by saying, okay, well, what are some words we say around our house a lot that might help us get started? And you said, one of, one of your kids raised their hand and said, go, go, go. Dad likes right. to say, go, go, go. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes the words we use are, are, are worse if we're not careful. Um, yeah. But you know, I think John Maxwell is, is the first person I heard say it, but I've really taken it as a value for my life. Success for me in leadership is not writing books. It's not the money I make. It's not even the people that I help. My primary marker of success is going to be when it's all said and done and I retire or I die, do the people who were closest to me respect me most, right? Mm. What does it matter if a bunch of people respect me because they listen to my podcast or they saw me on social media or they read my book or I helped their company if my family doesn't respect me, right? Yeah. And I just realized that if I'm too busy, it's really hard for me to be a dad and a leader that my family respects. So I want to do better there. Um, so thinking about something that's going on right now that a lot of leaders are having to face, it, it's turnover. It's transition on their teams, right? We're seeing more people leave jobs really than ever before. We're seeing people who are slow to come back into the workforce, into the market. Um, I think a lot of us thought, Garland, that once the pandemic um, kind of slowed down a little bit that people would rush back to the workforce. We'd have full teams. We wouldn't have to worry yet. Actually, we've seen more transitions since the pandemic began to slow down um, than probably we've ever seen. And, and a lot of experts are calling it the great resignation right now. Okay. Great resignation. When you look at your work, not only in busyness, but your work with leaders from around the country, what do you see um, as the biggest factors that are causing this great resignation and the raising turnover rate in businesses. Yeah, and and I would like to flip that and ask you about it in, in a second as as well too because I, we've had this conversation before. I think there are uh, there are multiple factors that are that are going on here. When, but when we look at busyness and when we look at culture in in companies, I think one of the reasons that people are leaving is because the pain of their job is not worth the payoff of their job. Not just the pay, not just the salary, and not just you know the, the health insurance benefits, but am I richer mentally, emotionally, relationally? Am I a richer person as a result of working at this company? Does this company help me accomplish the big dreams and the high priorities that I have, or does it totally get in the way of all of those things? And I think one of the things that happened for so many people during the pandemic is we they eliminated a commute, right? They eliminated uh, in many in many cases the need to get dressed, you know, and and wear actual clothing on a daily basis. We eliminated all of these things, and we thought 
that what would happen is we would get more time, more time with our family, more time to do things that we wanted. But I read one study that found that the average uh, work from home salaried employee was working three hours more per day once they started working from home. So now the we've lost even more freedom. So I, I really think one of the reasons that this great resignation is happening is people are looking at it and they're going, it's just the pain of work is not worth the payoff. And now I'm working from home and my life feels even more trapped. And there's so many jobs out there that are open. Why not go try to find a better company that's going to give me more freedom and better benefits? Yeah, no, that's, that's huge. What can we do about it? If, if you're a leader and you're having a hard time, one, fill in the spots in your team, but two, people who you wanted to keep are leaving. That's a big blow for a leader. There's yeah. no way not to fill that. That's a lot of pressure. What can we do to turn the tide on the teams that we lead? Yeah, I think that, uh, so uh, again, no perfect scenarios of, of what you're going to do. I do think it's important first, talk to your team members before they leave. What do you love about working here? What are your frustrations about working here? What do you wish you had more of? What do you wish you had less of? Just beginning to ask people in their jobs, hey, there's no uh, punishment in, in your answers. I'm just curious. I want to create a great environment for you to work. What's working? What's not working in this situation? Uh, the second thing is I do think there is a lot of value for leaders in creating a culture that does not value busyness, that values margin and time for people. And so beginning to communicate that, make busy a bad word uh, for your people, build those strong boundaries so that they can begin to, uh, to say, hey, work stops. This is when work stops. I can be at home. I can be with my family uh, during this time. So beginning to build a culture that doesn't value busyness, but instead value, values accomplishment within certain periods of time. Um, so those would be some of, some of my answers. Jeff, though, I'm curious. I know you've, you've thought about this a lot too. So what do you see happening with the great resignation? What are some reasons that you think this great resignation is happening and what can leaders do about that? Yeah, but I think it's a lot. And I think it's a lot of things under the surface that we don't necessarily pay attention to. You know, um, as leaders, we like easy answers. What can I put in place tomorrow? Um, but I, I think there's a lot of factors that's causing um, what we would call in a lot of ways, the work shortage. One, there are a lot of families that in the pandemic, they said, you know what, do I want to go back to work where I'm essentially just working to pay for daycare? Mm -hmm. Is that worth it? A lot of families have asked, can we function on one income? Okay. So it was a way for, so there are people who just didn't return to the workforce. They, they, they stopped. Um, we had people who are retiring because they were going to work another few years, baby boomers who were going to work another few years. And they say, you know what? I don't recognize this world anymore. I really don't. It's, it's different. Um, or maybe they got laid off and they're having a hard time finding another job because of their age. And they're just saying, hey, I'll take that early retirement. Um, beyond that, before the pandemic and before all this, we had more baby boomers retiring than we had people entering the workforce. And, you know, you and I've talked about this before, but we had people who were exiting the workforce at the top of their fields and profession. And then people who were entering the workforce at the very bottom, that's not an even swap. So, right. For a lot of different reasons, there are less people available to do those jobs that we want. So what has happened is I liken it to the real estate market, man. Um, if you look across the United States right now, 
the real estate market is, is not a buyer's market. It is a seller's market. Okay. The person's going to put their house up for sale and a lot of areas of the country. It's not up a full day before they have multiple competing cash offers above and beyond the asking price, right? Well, we don't think about that in, in the workforce, but the way you buy a house, the way you sell a house is different in a buyer's market than a seller's market. Okay. What's well, the same thing as a leader. I actually think for the first time that I can remember we're in an, we're in an employee market not an employer's market. Okay. Because think about this as a leader, the people who work on your team in any industry in the world right now, any industry, they can leave your job and go find another job tomorrow that will most likely give them a bonus to take it because they're looking for qualified people too. Right. So it's not about pay anymore. It's not about just those things. It's about Am I cared for? Am I healthy? Is this helping me accomplish the goals I want in life? So sometimes it seems counterproductive, but I I really believe that the companies that get that and say, you know what, this is an employee's market. How can we care for people so well? How can we provide so well for our employees that this is a place that you wouldn't leave because the benefit of working here outweighs um, anything that you would grab or just getting, you know, a few extra thousand dollars from somewhere else. So um, yeah. I think it comes down a lot to, to similar stuff that you're saying, but finding practical ways to care for your people because people want to be cared yeah. for. They don't want to be just a number, a cog in the wheel. So yeah. um, thinking about everything in the book, I wanted to ask you one more question because there's one more concept that I think as leaders we struggle with. This would be the last one, but um, I think if there's anything we could do, this might be one of the biggest things that that we could actually do to improve our leadership, to level up. You talk about the importance of taking a day off. You call it a stop day. And you challenge, you actually tell a story of, of Oliver and taking one of the busiest leaders that, that you knew and challenging him for eight weeks to take a stop day a week and see if it didn't up his productivity. So tell us about that. Why would you tell leaders to take a stop day if they're already overwhelmed? And how does that actually increase our productivity? Yeah. So Again, going back to what we talked about earlier, work expands to fill the time allotted. So one of the best ways that leaders can get more work done in less time is this counterintuitive idea of shrink the amount of time that you're actually working. Um, and, And so the idea of a stop day is where you literally build into your calendar, like I am not doing any work. Now, what do I mean by work? Work in this case is anything that you feel like you have to do. Okay. We want to get rid of that. So for 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 me, like lawn work, oh my gosh, I hate lawn work. I hate mowing the lawn. I hate weed eating. I had children so that they would do those things for me, right? Um, but I have friends who love lawn work, right? That adds joy to them to do that. So we're gonna have different definitions of of work, but it's it's making a commitment. I'm not going to do anything that feels like work. If I'm reading a book that feels like a workbook, I'm going to put that away. I'm going to, you know, watch a movie or or read a book that uh, that feels much more leisurely uh, to me. And and so it it is so valuable to your productivity. One, it refreshes your mind, right? And your mind is the single most uh, important productivity tool that you have. So it refreshes your mind. Second is it re-energizes you. And most of us are in this trap of thinking about time management and I've got to spend all of my time being productive. 
but your energy management is just as, if not more important than, than your time management. So what a sab, what this stop day does is it, it uh, refreshes your energy. It gives you more energy. So you go back into the, the next day and you can get more done in, in less time. The third thing that it does that I think is, is really valuable for productivity is that space, that 24 hours that you take, it gives you the ability to step back and remember what's most important, right? Whether that's your family, whether that's the, you know, the big projects that you're working on, it refreshes your mind enough where you can go, okay, yeah, these are the things that are really important that I need to be working on. And you are going to be far more productive if you're focused on the things that are most important for you. Um, at the end of the day, we are all going to die with an unfinished to-do list. Like we will all have things that we did not get to accomplish and we will die before that. So it's critical for you to say, what are the items in my life that I'm not willing to die having not accomplished? That's, that's what that stop day gives you the ability to do to step back. Mm, that's big. I'll never forget the first time I heard that from a leader, uh, Chuck Carriger, a guy that I respect so much. And he said, Jeff, for the rest of your leadership, you will never have a to-do list that's finished again. You got to be okay with leaving some things on the table. Just leave the right things on the table. So um, I, I guess I lied because I told you that was the last question. This is a quick one, but <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to, I'm starting to end the podcast with this one because I love hearing different people's perspectives on it. But if you could tell leaders who were listening, they could just do one thing to level up their leadership. What would you tell them to do? Gosh, so besides getting unbusy, Right. The one mm -hmm. thing that I would tell them to do is uh, is to have a diet of reading that uh, that uh, sparks your mind. Right. So a lot of us read because we want to learn something. And we we want to do something with it. I think that's great. I I just find that the more that I have a diet of intaking information from experts like you, Jeff. Uh, that the more I have that, that the better I'm able to lead. So get unbusy. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is make sure you have some reading in your life. Yeah. Well, those are two really good looking books behind you. Um, if you need <laughs> one first, get, get unbusy. Uh, but if you're looking for one after that, the next level leader, I've heard it's pretty good too. Yeah. I've um, heard that it's, it's pretty amazing. So Garland, if, uh, if our listeners, they're wanting to learn more about how to start that process of getting unbusy, they want to learn more about what you do. How can they connect with you? Yeah, go to killbusy.com. And I actually have an offer for you there. I'm going to tell you all about busy on there, but, but I'd love for your listeners to know that if they go to killbusy.com, I will send them a free signed copy of getting unbusy if they'll just pay for the shipping and the handling. Okay. So killbusy.com free book. You just pay for the shipping and the handling. Well, that is as good of a deal as I've heard on any of those. So, um, and man, I love the book. If you get the book, I'm telling you, it's not just the book. It feels like every chapter there's something, Hey, go to you know killbusy.com and it'll give you another spot to go to get a free tool. That's going to make this practical. It's going to put legs on this thing for you. So um, Garland, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today, uh, just really to pour into our listeners. I know that I've gotten better uh, from the conversation with you. And uh, more than anything, man, I just appreciate your friendship and your encouragement as I've embarked on this journey, having uh, having other people like you who, who are ahead, who can ask me great questions and uh, it, it gently encouraged me not to go their own directions. I really appreciate it. Man, it is my pleasure. My pleasure.